This week on the Back Table Podcast. So what are we supposed to do with that? You know, just let her get be put in a wheelchair? Well, you know, maybe. I mean, maybe that's the right thing, but I don't think so. And so knowing that we can ad- adapt some of the interventional techniques that we're doing to that situation, you do it. And not only do patients get better, they get a lot better. And they stay better. And it's consistent. And you do so without through little poke holes that don't even involve a suture or staple. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things IR and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. Before we dive into our topic, let me first say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians, providing clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoroguided interventions. See radpad.com for more information. Contact info at RadPad for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And let them know you heard about it on the Back Table podcast. For today's episode, I'm honored to welcome Dr. Douglas Beal, to share his insight and experience performing advanced musculoskeletal and spinal interventions. Dr. Beal is the Chief of Radiology Services at Clinical Radiology of Oklahoma and Chief of Services at the Spine Fracture Institute. He also serves as the Chair of the SIR Pain Service Line and is a widely regarded authority both within and beyond the IR community on minimally invasive musculoskeletal interventions. Dr. Beal, thanks for sharing your time and expertise with the Back Table community. I think you're our first podcast guest who has climbed Mount Everest. Uh, <laughs> so it's probably hard to find good replacement hobbies after that. Well, you know, I climbed one time with one of my friends. He was the first Egyptian to climb Mount Everest. And he was on our team. And we went to climb another mountain in Russia. And he had brought some of his people along. And the guy came up and the, we introduced him to people. And Victor, the uh, Englishman that was our permanent guide was introducing to everybody and said, well, in the, uh, in this person is climbed Mount Everest and this person has climbed <laughs> Mount Everest and oh yes. And he's been up Everest as well. And the, the guy looks at me and goes, you know, I've never met anybody that's climbed Mount Everest and basically everybody in this room has done it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it depends on which circles you, you run around in. Sounds like I need to get some more interesting circles though. Dr. Bill, you your career is taking you to some pretty diverse practice environments. Can you tell us a little about your current practice model? Yeah, I'd like to give you a little background. It may explain why the, the amalgam of the practice is what it is. So, you know, I trained, started off at, at Hopkins and in diagnostic radiology shortly after the earth cooled in the nineties. And I was there and started off in an interventional radiology fellowship and then was taken in by the military. And then I was moved from uh, Baltimore to Wichita Falls, Texas, where I was the chair of a uh, service line for the chairman of the division for interventional services. And it was essentially me and another guy, and it was a Shepard Air Force Base training pilot base. It was pretty vigorous. It was like a small town, and we had a very vigorous general radiology practice. And I was kind of the journeyman. I was in charge of interventional radiology, not even having completed a fellowship or even hardly even half of it. So I've finished there, I, I took a fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in musculoskeletal radiology, and I was gone for a year to do that. And I was there when the 
interventional pain services were kind of up and going. And, and I learned a lot of the interventional pain techniques from a guy named Tim Moss. And to their credit, they just kind of let me run with it. I mean, whenever I started fellowship, they put me in a room and said, go to it. If you have any questions, let me know. Very different than <laughs> what we have, what we have now. Right. And I went from there back into the Air Force for the residual two-year commitment. And I was in musculoskeletal radiology. I also did a call for interventional radiology, the trauma call. My office was in orthopedics. And so once I finished there, I went to University of Oklahoma for a couple of years and, and I did the same thing. I was part of the orthopedic department and uh, we did interventional call, level one trauma, and I had interventional pain services, which basically encompassed everything, you know, minimally invasive musculoskeletal intervention. It was pretty broad ranging, broad scope. And I did that for two years until they changed chairman. And then I punched out, went into private practice. So I just, they changed chairman and shut the new chairman, shut my interventional services down. So I kind of resigned and left same day and went out and did uh, solo practice radiology, which included mainly musculoskeletal intervention, some diagnostic. So, you know, I didn't have any, any pattern, any, any type of, uh, mentor. I had no pattern to follow, didn't know, uh, what, what I needed to do, how, how to build, how to code. I didn't know what I needed for clinic, nothing. So I established myself at a, a community hospital. It was kind of a, a provisional offshoot of the university where I, where I did some work previously. And I started off, I didn't know anything. And I, I didn't know, frankly, if I could make it. And that was 2005 and there weren't too many solo practice individual radiologists back then. But I started out and it, at about a six month time frame, you know, I, I, I knew I could do it in about the year to two into it. You, you couldn't pry that practice from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> and uh, so I started the way I started as 2005. And by 2007, I uh, increased my vertebral augmentation practice, which is one of the things I love dearly to, to the point where I was disrupting uh, the vertebral augmentation practices around the city. Sure. And so, so I had the spine hospital, the great spine hospital, Oklahoma spine hospital invited me over and I thought, okay, you know, this is probably going to be a confrontational meeting. And I sat around the, the table with some, some notable guys and I had uh, a guy named Jack Marshall ask me how I was doing so many. And I said, well, I, I think probably good quality, you know, I take care yeah. of longitudinally. I, I do the augmentation. I use good cutting edge techniques. I treat their underlying osteoporosis afterwards. And I make sure they're good, not only from a fracture standpoint, but from an all around standpoint. I think yeah. that's just a better way to do it. And he said, well, we do too. That's why we're asking you to join us. And so I joined Oklahoma Spine Hospital in 2007, and that's you know, part of a uh, physician-owned facility. And then yeah, I, I left the institution where I went to immediately afterwards. And I was part of another facility that was a physician owned called Summit Medical Center. Also in the same place is right outside of Oklahoma City in a suburb called Edmond. And then, you know, I've, I've been here and there and I'm also on staff for two of the big box hospitals. And I practice primarily, this is, I call it kind of an Uber private practice. This is physician owned, a practice out of a hospital, HOPD. We have 
office space labs, and these are all physician-owned. So in a situation like that, when you own the business and the operations and the equipment and management, bricks and mortar, the people that is your, the only person that is your boss is the patient. And, you know, it always kind of sounds a little bit corny, but, you know, you, we really do make our success one patient at a time. And the, the drive, I think, for success and being successful for that individual and that person has really been what has shaped my practice. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think that's the, the best way to compete in uh, a busy marketplace is, is to do it best. And I think what you're doing and following these patients longitudinally is, is, is really showing some of the best of our specialty and the way we should be doing this. But that really answers a lot of questions I had for you. You know, I mean, one of the things that I'd mentioned previously is that, you know, just from the, the cases that I've seen that, you know, you've, you've shared on Twitter and, and from educational materials, you know, it, it's hard to tell if, you know, if you're, a, I would guess you're an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon, you know, and, and this really explains a lot. It also explains, you know, how you're able to develop these, you know, understanding of musculoskeletal and, and spinal biomechanics that allow you to do these really complex procedures. But Dr. Beale, you're, you still manage to stay on the leading edge of innovation in this sector. How are you introduced to all these new devices and procedures and how do you go from there to actually, you know, introducing them into your practice? It's, it's quite easy. So, <laughs> and in regard to the first part about that is don't, don't feel bad. I mean, I've known guys for 20 years that come up to me at parties and, and introduce me as the wrong specialty, you know, there are patients of mine that still don't know what specialty I practice. And, you know, one of the things that I think that interventional radiology suffers from just in general is best illustrated. I remember in residency, it was probably my second year in and we had been up all night doing some ridiculous case <laughs> and, and the great Tony Venbrooks comes in and, and, you know, he's, he's just a legend, right? And he was kind of grousing, you know, he, he was a little grumpy and started grousing about things. And, you know, he, he was talking about things that I, I, I found was very interesting. You know, he started the lecture and then he started complaining about, you know, things that we do and about how awesome the case was and about how nobody will know how incredible that case was. I, you know, I said, yeah, that's right. That's right. And he kind of went on to say, you know, we do amazing things. And, you know, I said, yeah, agreed with that. Everybody kind of looked around and nodded. Yeah, we do some pretty amazing things. They said, one of the things that really disappoints me is that regardless of the amazing things that we do, not even my own mother knows what I do for a living. Sure. And I thought, hmm, so true. And that kind of, that point punctuated, you know, one of the issues that I'm still dealing with you know, literally 20 plus years later is some of my colleagues called me and they said, you know, I have a weird question for you. I said, okay, you know, shoot, <laughs> can't imagine what this is going to be, but he goes, which, what do we do? What should we call ourselves? What, what's the name of what we do? And, you know, I said that my friend is the right question sure. because, you know, what is an interventional radiologist? Well, it doesn't seem like that's what I do at all. And that's why people uh, look at the, tw the Twitter post and LinkedIn post. And about two years ago, I kind of made a concerted decision. 
to, to really answer your question, Michael, how am I able to do some of the new stuff and stay up on the cutting edge is people come to me because I learned a long time ago, even though I'm, I'm in private practice, I still publish five or six, five or six level one papers a year. I've written a textbook within the last year. I'm working on another one. Now it's my sixth textbook. Uh, we publish 15 to 20 papers a year. We go to meetings, we speak where we try to be visible. And I try to be visible because I want people to come to me with new things. Yeah. We all, we all have risk tolerances and my risk tolerance is pretty high. Uh, I know that is not a shocker to say that, <laughs> but, but, but it is, it's kind of, but radiologists, interventional radiologists have the sixth sense about how to stay away from complications. And it, it's almost undescribable, but there's a barrier that we come to in a case that we push up to that barrier in, in our mind's eye, we know not to go beyond it. Right. Because it is, if we do, we're going to cause, cause something bad to happen. And, you know, I, I can feel that I've always had that sixth sense about where to stop. And I'm consistently amazed about what we do and what I do to people and big things on the inside, small poke holes on the outside right? and, and not cause problems. Is yeah, I think there's a, a sixth sense. There's also the ability to see and treat. The diagnosis is something that can't really be divorced from what we do. So the ability to get a, a good treatment outcome is predicated on a good diagnostic input. And when I started off in radiology, I wanted to be the absolute best I could in in making a good diagnostic input. And I worked exceedingly hard on doing that. And I, I've been thankful for that for my whole career because you, the ability to look in and see what's wrong with the person, combine that with the, the clinical, physical exam, the clinical information, you get really good about identifying pain generators. I was going over some data today that says, you know, the Bowden data, the Jensen data, the Weishaupt data that said, oh, you know, two thirds of everybody has abnormalities on the MRI. So it's really hard to tell what's wrong. I'm thinking to myself, no, it's not. It's not at all. I mean, you're, you're reading it backwards just because it's there doesn't mean it's painful, but the other way around, when somebody comes in with a pain, right side of radiculopathy, and you see a right side of parasomal disc protrusion of four or five, boom, that's it, regardless of what else is wrong. And you can test it. So to look in, to see the diagnosis, to optimize the treatment, it's like the orthopedist looking at the meniscal tear under the scope and then going back and looking at it under the MRI. That's how they do it. That's how they become good. And that's how we become good, except the other way around. And once you become good at treating, then you, you learn the various treatment categories. I have this huge PowerPoint called, uh, called the condition specific treatment of back pain. And each one has a, a condition, you know, discogenic back pain, facetogenic back pain vertebral compression fractures, acute radiculopathy, so I mean, things like this. And then, then you go from click down using the least invasive thing and you click down becoming often more invasive, but, but usually more definitive until you stop at the combination of the least invasive thing that helps somebody. And if you have to, you click all the way down. And in the process of doing this, you, f you figure out where your shortcomings are and one of the criticisms I get a lot from my colleagues is they say, you're always focused on failures. And that's, that's true because I don't want to focus on successes. 
there's nothing there except an attaboy or a pat on the back. Trying to make uh, each condition treatable in a minimally invasive fashion all the way down to the point where you're ultimately very successful at doing that, I mean, that's the goal. And you take something like interspinous decompression spacers, that is a little bit of an arcane and esoteric topic. You know, I don't care about the, you know, the five-year output is 80% decreased leg pain, 65% decreased back pain, and corresponding improvement in Oswestry disability function. Yeah, super. You know, hair tussle. Who cares about those? Those are great. What about the people that have recurrent symptoms, people that have a disc herniation, facet cyst, recurrent stenosis, subsidence? What do, we, what do we do about those? And that's really where I focus to try to perfect the technology. I'm interested in new things. I'm interested in optimizing new things. And we've had a consistent stream of successes for, you know, interspinous spacer that we've had a recent success there that people don't know about, but they will very soon. Intradiscal uh, augmentation with mesenchymal stem cells combined with micronized disc material, big, big triple arm randomized control trial, dramatic success at treating patients with discogenic back pain. Wow. Treat, treating patients, and that's coming up. That's not published yet. So I'm, I'm giving your listeners some things on the horizon that, that they haven't even heard of yet, haven't even uh, seen come out in the literature. Things that have come out in the literature include things like spine jack. You know, started working on that in Europe and uh, about 10 years ago. And that's revolutionized. It's, it's in 36 years of vertebral augmentation. It's the only thing that's been better than the predicate. And it's better in three different areas. So th there's numerous successes that we can point to concurrent and in the past. And that's how I think the, that's how the bar is, is raised. I think that's how we advance things. And that's how, as long as you have a risk tolerance and you can control the complications and you know the disease process and the place that it's best placed, that's where I think we can really make a difference. If you can do something and do something with early feasibility studies and knowing exactly that you're doing things on people, that you're giving them an opportunity that they don't have, you're not taking anything away from them. And one of the things that you noted, uh, much to my surprise. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised you're a bright guy, but you notice that a lot of the things that I do don't have names and they're way out there. <laughs> and and the, the only commonality that every single one of these things has is that these patients have been put through with no, and given no option. I mean, no option. And so it's either suffer or Maybe we can try something that is a little bit out of the box yeah. to fix somebody. And, you know, we do it and we follow them along. And, you know, an, an example of this is we had somebody with a discitis at uh, L2-3. The discs were eroded and end plates fractured, horrible deformity, seen by three deformity surgeons, adult deformity surgeons, all of which said nothing we can do to help you. And so I said, you know, I'm going to send you to one more whose opinion I, val I value and trust. If he says no, then I'll, I'll do something to help you. She came back. We put a spine jack in the disc, stretched her out, cemented her from top to bottom in that segment, and, and she got up and walked out of there. Hadn't been able to walk in six months. And, and that is the kind of scenario that is just, you know, fantastic. But having the lack of additional things to be able to help that patient I think 
that's where we live. That's where the, the bar is raised. That's where the advancements are made. And that's where the opportunity lies. And to try to, you know, in 25 years, sitting around a table, I've had this experience. I said, you know, to people in 25 years, we're not going to be making big incisions. Everybody nods their head. We're not going to be doing big invasive surgeries, more nodding. So in 25 years, we're going to be doing things through a poke hole, maybe a scope, maybe image guided. And we're going to be doing big things on the inside, but small things on the outside. And so if everybody agrees about this, you know, when are we going to start and how are we going to get there? Those are the only two questions that we need answered. Man, you really just nailed the answer to that question. And that, that really answered a lot of the things I was hoping to get into. And, and that case in particular, I've, I've seen the pictures. I actually texted the pictures of the case to Aaron last night in case I wasn't able to record. I was going to ask you about that one. Mm -hmm. uh, it's amazing. So I, I do want to take a second there to ask you about your new book. Uh, it's yeah. titled Vertebral Augmentation, The Comprehensive Guide to Vertebroplasty, Kyphoplasty, and Implant Augmentation. It's published in March, and our listeners can find it on Amazon and theme.com. Can you tell us a little bit about how you put this together and how it's different from standard textbooks on this topic? Absolutely. So I put it together by doing years of education. So we teach people vertebral augmentation techniques and have done it for a long time. You know, I, I've described the original descriptions of two out of the three approaches to the vertebral body. And we've put together teaching curriculum. And for teaching curriculum, you have the approaches and you have, you know, vertebral plasty, balloons, implants, and you have the usual typical stuff. You have the prevalence. But what you don't have is questions like, how much cement should I put in the vertebral body? Okay, I see the patient back. They still have pain. Now what? When should I really choose them? Kyphoplasty versus a vertebral plasty. Or does it matter? I mean, I try to reduce the height and reestablish. I mean, but does that really matter? I mean, when should we treat people? Why should we brace people? What data is there behind that? And so forth. And the, the answers to all of these questions, I comprise little PowerPoints. And I put them in a big file. And for every PowerPoint, for every question somebody has, I would shoot them a PowerPoint, like here's the answer and here's the evidence behind it. And by doing that time and time again, there's a grouping of about 25 or, or 30 questions that are common focuses that are the typical ones that people always ask about. And, you know, for, for years, I would just keep up with the literature. And every time I found something interesting, I would add it. And every time I found something groundbreaking or Earth shattering, I'm absolutely at it. And, and I would maintain the evidence and maintain the story in that PowerPoint. And then one day I was asked to do a paper on interventional pain procedures. And I said, you know, I don't, I'll do that later. But what I really think needs to come out first is a book on vertebral augmentation. And I essentially took those PowerPoints and made them into a book. And this is the real how-to, and hopefully the vertebral augmentation of comprehensive guy, I hope will answer every question that you have. And it, it has even a chapter of the masters of vertebral augmentation. I put, I put in stuff in here that, that has not been published. For example, 
thoracic pain after fixing mid-thoracic fractures. That's really not been discussed in the literature. Guy named Fergus McKiernan described it originally as, as postural fatigue syndrome, and I want to credit him for that, but he never published it. He never wrote about it. And so we have a whole chapter in there about postural fatigue syndrome. You say this pain after thoracic fractures and everybody's like, yeah, <laughs> happens all the time. I've seen it hundreds of times, literally nothing in the literature, nothing. That's it's in, it's in the book. We have biomechanical data in the book. We have guides about that answers everything that I just said. We have a chapter in there called the masters of vertebral augmentation. I, I sent saw it that. Out. And it's, I'm tweeting it out right now. I'm tweeting out section by section. We, we have sections in there on the master's guide. It's, it's about, I sent an email out to about a hundred of my, my colleagues that are experts in vertebral augmentation. And I said, give me your fastball. I, I want, I want you, I want your best tip trick. I want your best thing that you do that you may not have told anybody about that that you do that you really rely on your go-to and i don't care what it is give me three or four paragraphs give me two or three images talk about whatever it is you want to do and and just give me that and i don't care what it is but i i really would like to see what people's best tips and tricks the curb what uh, similar to a worldwide curbside whenever uh, people get out and say, this is what we want to do. And what we came back with was, was unbelievable. I mean, I, I got things from all over the world and I, I'm tweeting it out right now. So my Twitter handle is at Doug Beal and Beal's B-E-A-L-L. So just give it a follow and you, and I'm, I'm tweeting out the PowerPoints. I, I gave a talk last year in France at uh, where T-Roll Plasty was, was invented. And the talk was about the, the masters of vertebral augmentation and what they did. And there's, there's sections in there. Stefano Marchia wrote a whole section about treating Magrelate 3.3 fractures with spine jack. I mean, there's how much, the, there's cementation tips. There's tips on treating recurrent fractures after uh, vertebral augmentation. There's tips on how to allow pedicle screw placement after vertebral augmentation. I mean, it, it's just filled with all kinds of stuff. And the whole book, the, the fundamental theme of the whole book, and the reason why it, it, it has a comprehensive guide is because it, it is just that. Yeah. It's, not an, it's not an exhaustive resource. It doesn't have the world's literature in it. It, it, it is not the unabridged Webster's Dictionary. It is not something you can use as a, a ballast in your car whenever you drive through the snow. I mean, it's not designed to be used as a doorstop. I mean, this, it's, it's, a, it's a book that if you're really interested in upping your game and doing the best possible augmentation, being the best at it, this is your book. It'll tell you exactly how to do that. It'll give you tips and tricks, most of which uh, are in the literature, some of which are not. Yeah, I mean, it, it even goes beyond that too. It's got it's got stuff on RF ablation, dorsal root ganglion stimulation. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's indeed comprehensive. So, you know, one of the other things I, I'd mentioned, we may talk about it, you know, you, I went through your, your Twitter case and your website to look at all these different unique procedures that you're offering. And what are a few things that you're doing beyond, you know, spine jack and these, these crazy vertebral augmentations? What are some few, what are a few of the things you're doing right now that, that you're, you're excited about that, you know, we'll begin to see more of in the, in the coming years? Well, 
the reason I started tweeting and and sending these out on LinkedIn is, you know, I, I've had I have a visiting professor program and I have people come through here, right? And uh, they're like, "Man, what are you doing? You know, this is I've never seen anything like this." And and they they said you you need to advertise this stuff and you know i've i've never advertised i don't even i'm not a I, whenever there was a phone book i wasn't even in the phone book and but that kind of resonated with me there's a lot of stuff we do is is pretty arcane and unusual and so i started tweeting it out and and putting it on linkedin and a lot of those and I, I did so because i wanted people to see you know how what we do and I wanted to, to kind of show people what was, what was happening. And I was always a little bit skeptical. You know, I, you do things and you do things for the right reason, but it's always for me difficult to have people look over my shoulder because a lot of what we do, they don't understand. You know, for example, the, the two, three case with old disguidus and yeah, you know, why, why would you put a spine jack in somebody's disc? That's just crazy. That's off label. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing it, that kind of stuff. Well. You know, tell that to her. She can walk for the first time in six months and she's good. And I've, I've probably done that for people with DGen Scoli that are back of the rack cases that are 85 years old, severe degenerative scoliosis, bad coexisting spinal stenosis. I put a pump in them and they're starting to lose the ability to walk because of nerve root compression. And no spinal deformity surgeon worth his weight salt will touch her because she's too high risk. So what are we supposed to do with that? You know, just let her get be put in a wheelchair? Well, you know, maybe. I mean, maybe that's the right thing, but I don't think so. And so knowing that we can ad adapt some of the interventional techniques that we're doing to that situation, you do it. And not only do patients get better, they get a lot better and they stay better and it's consistent. And you do so without through little poke holes that don't even involve a suture or staple. So now tell me what the right thing to do is. And so these are kind of amalgam of, of cases that are like that. You know, and it, it's kind of hard to know what to do. And, and a colleague of mine says, you told me about that same time, because, you know, you need to be sharing what you do. You're going to get you're going to step off a curb one time and get hit by a bus. And then none of us would really ever know. And, and I said, well, okay. So I made the decision at that time to resurrect fellowship training program and to start posting these things. And it's been, I, I, I've been pleasantly surprised and they've been very well received. You know, I, I get the occasional blowback from spine surgeons and some of the other people that say we shouldn't be doing it. And one of the other reasons to to investigate to be to be all in with uh, completely in for uh, research and level one data is because you can respond to that by saying, well, you know what, you shouldn't really rely on your non-randomized, non-placebo controlled study of your own opinion because we've got data that says that. What we're doing here in this particular case is not only better than the, the traditional thing, it's a lot better. So, for example, you know, fusion for destable discogenic back pain, you know, a good to excellent surgical outcome is like 33% reduction in pain, which is crazy. Wow. 
And some of the things we're doing, like basal vertebral nerve ablation to turn off the pain nerve to the disc and stem cell augmentation of the intervertebral disc has pain improvements from, from like 70 to 85% and Oswestry improvements that are, that are, uh, that are about the same as that, probably a little bit better for, in terms of stem cell augmentation of the disc. And it's far less invasive, far less expensive, and you don't have the problem with the JACE level breakdown. And so this is kind of the reason to be involved in the investigation of it because you can do crazy cases and that's one thing. And that's where the crazy cases are where the new ideas come from. Sure. And whenever the new ideas are established, then, you know, I, I can say what I, I think what I do is better, but what I really would like to do is put my money where my mouth is and test this. Yeah, I think it's better. So let's test them this group versus patients that say get a T10 to the alien fusion or something like this, test the adverse events, safety and efficacy, put it down and record it for posterity. And then by, by doing that, we'll really be able to figure out if what we're doing is right and really advance the science and, and, and just advance the treatment down the field. And that's, that's exactly what we need to be doing. So Doug, what, what advice do you have for interventionalists out there who are looking to learn procedures like spinous process augmentation or the basal vertebral nerve ablation? The first thing I like them to know is that it's not that hard. It's, it's really easy to do these things. Spinous process augmentation is done in concert with putting in interspinous decompression spacers. And this is what I was referring to earlier. And I did that because I knew that subsidence of the implant into the spinous process would cause <clears throat> symptom recurrence. And so I, I learned this technique from a guy named Luigi Manfrey. He is Italian practices in Sicily. And first time I saw it, I thought that looks like something that would really work because early on doing X stops, interspinous decompression mm-hmm. spaces were done open. You know, I had a problem with subsidence and I would say we have a problem with subsidence and I'd get very little uptake on this. But, you know, later we knew that to be the case. And Luigi did a paper of 688 patients, 256 people did not have spinous process augmentation. The rest did and used symptom recurrence. That's it. This symptom recurrence as the only metric of measurement. He found symptom recurrence in 11.3% of the ones that did not have spinous process augmentation and less than 1% in the ones that did. Wow. Yeah. And this came out this last year. And once it came out, you, you, you take one look at the paper and you're like, yeah, of course, duh, as my daughter says with an eye roll. I mean, you know, that, that, that should do that. It should make sense. And so spinous process augmentation, we just, I just developed a kit for it because we don't really have anything formal made for it. We just kind of cobble things together. You know, I used to use a 14-gauge bone opti and some, some uh, vertisem 2 cement. Now we actually have a kit that we made through a company called IZI with the 13-gauge needle that has a lure lock on it and some plastic 1cc syringes that are easy to control. And you don't need that much cement. You need it to be cheap and you need it to be effective. And this is something that's very easy to learn, super easy. And it's right up there with basal vertebral nerve ablation. So, you know, this uh, compared with discogenic back pain. So discogenic back pain treated, stable discogenic back pain treated with fusion. You know, it's about 50, 50, 50% of the people 
improve 50%, don't improve or get worse. It takes 12 weeks to recover from. You're not yourself again for a year. And as I mentioned, the pain reduction is less than optimal. And what I didn't mention is about is about one in five patients will have additional surgery within four years. That's based on Ermola data. So compare that with basal vertebral nerve ablation has about 70% response rate, uh, 70, 75% response rate, meaning people, that percentage of people respond to it. And on the average, they reduce their pain about 75%. And it appears to be durable or permanent. And it's, you, you do that similar to vertebral augmentation technique. It's not even something, incision big enough, you get a suture staple. So, you know, it's, it's a no comparison for efficacy, no comparison for durability and level of invasiveness. And, and it, anybody that does augmentation can do basic vertebral nerve ablation. It's just a matter of targeting and bone. It's really simple. And the difference between arf ablation and bone and outside of bone is it appears that the nerve doesn't grow back, which is a good thing. Yeah, that that sounds exciting. I mean, they, I look forward to seeing you know further results. And those those numbers are hard to argue with. Let's see, what else am I missing here, Doug? What else? What else do you want to talk about that we haven't covered? I want to talk about value. Um, value. I, I want to talk about name and value. So, you know, I don't know what we do is named appropriately. I don't know whether you call it radiologic surgery. I, I don't know if you call it something else, but the public still doesn't really know what we do for a living. And I think it's, I think now that we've really advanced the field in a lot of different areas, peripheral vascular disease, interventional oncology, interventional pain, I think it's probably time to really, to really rethink that. You know, I, I love diagnostic radiology, but I'm worried about it. I think the satisfaction that I've seen has decreased by 20% in the most recent article I saw on JACR. And the burnout rate is up. And for years, I worked away and didn't really understand. I, I just ignored it. I thought, you know, this is, this is not true. I mean, it can't, can't be true. I have high satisfaction, love what I do. And then what, article after article about, about burnout. And I think burnout has to do with a combination of feeling valued and maybe autonomy and independence. I think that's what gives value. And it, I saw this a long time ago. I worked at an institution where, where we had this thing called Scribe. And this was in the 90s. And this was a touchscreen uh, precursor to the iPad way, way before that was even a concept. And we would touch the screen and we had different screens for each body part and modality. And it, it would make a report. And that was about the time that Baltimore VA had their PAC system going up. And Elliot Siegel was over there uh, with the PAC system. And, you know, I thought, you know, wouldn't that be interesting putting a PAC system that you could view images from everywhere, anywhere, in one place and combine that with scribe and have a place where you can see the studies that you want to read and having kind of an automated way to, to generate that report and be able to send it anywhere. And, you know, 25 years later, we, we have that, we have exactly that. 
And I thought, you know, that, that, and at that time, I remember the first year of residency in 1994, I looked at the word commodification. <laughs> I, I really, I, I looked that up and I, because I thought about it, about image interpretation becoming a commodity. And part of the reason I do what I do is because I didn't want to be a commodity. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to preserve what we do is a, a, especially maybe as an artful, artful specialty. And you know, I, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I want to do now in the way that I want to do it. And it's tremendously rewarding and it, it hurts to see other people that have maybe burnout or don't feel valued. And I saw last week, Michael, I saw this thing that <clears throat> this on a conference call that was really something that I had been waiting to see for quite some time. And I was absolutely blown away. And what it was, was it was AI software that could read lumbar spine MRIs and create a report automatically and could detect fractures, disc herniation, spinal stenosis, both changes, measure disc height and do so and all about and create a report automatically and stratify the level of importance and do it in about four seconds. Wow. That's faster than me. <laughs> almost, almost. <laughs> I said, you make it faster. That's incredible. Then you got something, but it, it's, it, it is something that I knew was coming and I have an image from uh, Ray Kurzweil's book. It's about this guy sitting at a table and it had, it has the, the, th the caption under it is what computers can do and what computers can't do is the posters hang on the wall with handwritten notes about things they can't do and what they, and there's a bunch of them on the floor and the, the sheets of paper on the floor have things that previously computers couldn't do, you know, like a uh, computer uh, cannot speak, uh, speak with a human voice. Computers cannot recognize faces. And there's a bunch of things like this down on the floor. And this guy is furiously writing things that computers can't do and while the rest of the things on the wall are dropping down to the floor. And so, you know, I, what I'd like to see is uh, with involvement, especially is people involved with things that really make a difference because yeah. my goal is to take that AI and make a see and treat machine out of it. So we, uh, we have an algorithm that combines what we do, the, the procedures that we do and to make them condition specific, digestible, hierarchical, that places them. And so if you have spinal stenosis, here are the things that you can do for it. One, two, three, four, in the level of least invasive to most invasive, possibly less definitive to most definitive, and do so in a way that, that you, combines it with the diagnosis of the condition in a very accurate, objective, and literature-informed way. So instead of an MRI of the low back, you have a see-and-treat machine. You have something that, that diagnoses what's wrong with you and tells you, based on the best available information, what to do about it and tells you the order to do it in. And that's one of the things that we're working on now. And I have to say that we are not more than five years out from having this. And this is, this is something that I want people to put that into perspective and to be, you know, uh, and 
to be a radiologist and be able to do this requires expertise, not only in treatment, but certainly in diagnosis. And as I mentioned previously, that shouldn't be overlooked. And there, one of the things I didn't say though, is there's not very many people with that degree of expertise around. That there, people take that for granted that diagnosis is easy, but it's not. And they take the diag- things for granted that that awesome treatment is easy. It's not either. And to combine the two is really something I think I would like to put forward as a goal for the specialty, an accurate description of what we do, put together diagnosis and treatment and to really encapsulate that and to do so. And, and I will submit to you, my friend, that if you put that together, just like I've outlined it, you will not be burned out and you will experience the maximum possible value and you will never want to stop because you will be making people better at the highest possible rate for a very long period of time. Well, I'm with you. And until we get that seed treat machine, the rest of us will just continue learning it from you. Dr. Bill, thank you. This is this was fantastic. We, you know, we really appreciate having you on and, and thank you for giving us your time and expertise. It's been a real pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having me. 